as we get into it. Uh, this is part of our sermon series, uh, Doubting Christianity, which we started on Easter, uh, where we're working through some questions people will raise that are, are kind of critical questions about the validity of Christianity. And today's is, shouldn't everyone define their own truth? And so this passage comes from Galatians chapter four or chapter two, verses four through ten. <clears throat> Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, this is the Apostle Paul writing, um, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when, I, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go out to the Gentiles as they to the circumcised. The only thing they asked us was to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So, one of the things when you read uh, the epistles, when you read Paul's letters, when you read the New Testament letters, one of the things that you see happening there is uh, you see a, this, this struggle happening between the freedom that is ours in Christ and, for lack of a better way to say it, religious fundamentalists who would say, actually, you're not allowed to be that free. Your resting in the finished work of Christ also needs to be accompanied by keeping these rules and these customs and these traditions. And that's, that's, a, that's a struggle that you see in New Testament letters over and over and over again and figuring out the, the answer to the question of where's the balance in honoring Christ with our lives and believing that the word of God is living and active and true and doesn't ever expire and seep, seeping into a kind of a uh, moralism and legalism that the gospel frees us from. And so, so where is that, is that line, and how do you discern that? Paul is getting at that here in this passage where he's talking about this confrontation that happens with people who are coming into the church that he's leading in order to spy out ways that they are abusing freedom. And I love the forthrightness of the Apostle Paul. It's everywhere in his writing. As he says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. And we did that to preserve the gospel for you. So we're going to talk a little bit about fundamentalism. And I'm going to say here at the beginning, we're all fundamentalists. You're either a libertine fundamentalist and, you're, and the fundamental that you embrace is nothing should ever apply to anybody, absolutely. Or you can be on the other end of, of kind of a religious fundamentalist where you have 800 rules that a true Christian would certainly follow. Uh, and if you don't see them doing these things, then you should, you should definitely question the validity of their faith. The question is, look, all of us adhere to foundational ideas that guide our lives. Those, then they're fundamentals. 
And so the question is, what are the fundamentals that are worth giving our lives to? So I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's go back to when I was a kid for a moment. I think the year was 1984. Some of you will know as soon as I indicate this, this kind of cultural marker. Um, I remember, I grew up in a small town, and I remember as a kid stepping out of the theater after seeing the Karate Kid. Our small town had, the, it was the Diana Theater, it was called, and it, and it was a one-screen theater that would play usually one, if not two, movies at a time. They would, they would show, like, the PG movie, and then, and then later they would show, you know, PG-13 or R-rated movies. And, and in our town, there was this, it was, that was all it was. It, usually it was films that had been out for a few weeks. Two blocks down the street from the theater was the local pizza place called the Pizza Shack, and uh, where they had this, you know, they had these big gallon-sized cans of nacho cheese, and they would make breadsticks and give you a, a little scoop of nacho cheese and, and, you know, Coke in those plastic stackable cups that get kind of warm, you, you know, the kind, the pizza place cup. And uh, so, so for us in, in our small town, the, the, we all kind of had the same routine on Friday nights, and that was we would go to the movie, and then we'd walk the two blocks and go down to the pizza shack, and everybody did it. And so... You'd go to the theater, and, and you wouldn't all know who was there, but then when you were walking to the pizza shack, you'd see everybody. And I remember stepping out into that warm summer air, uh, the side door of the theater, with my friends, only minutes after seeing Danielson take down Cobra Kai with that crane kick. And I was as sure as a boy could be that in the past two hours, I myself had learned karate. <laughs> and you know that experience. You've experienced that too, right? You see a movie and you walk out, and, you know, whether it's dancing or martial arts or whatever it is, you walk out there and you just, and you can see that. You can see all the kids in my town karate chopping each other and pretending to, trying to do crane kicks. You can see us all doing this as we're making our way down to those breadsticks and cokes that await us. And you know, right? None of us knew karate. <laughs> Like, you know that we didn't, we didn't really know karate by watching that film. No matter how much I might have insisted that I knew karate, the thing is, it just wasn't the truth. It wasn't true. I felt like I knew karate. I had an experience that, felt, that I felt gave me insight I didn't have before I went into that. But if I insisted that, no, this is my truth, you have to receive my truth. I know karate now. I'm a black belt. I just watched the karate kid. If, if I insisted that this was my truth, as people sometimes do this day, that wouldn't change the fact that if I stepped in to the sparring ring with a black belt, I would be on my back in no time and I wouldn't even really know what happened, right? We're responding today to the question, shouldn't I be free to define my own truth? And that gets thrown around a lot today. I'm just, let me be really transparent with you about a couple of things on this. Um, one is pastorally, I've been sensitive to the fact that in preaching a sermon like this, it can be really easy for Christians to take a, yeah, this is an us versus them moment. And all those crazy people who think you just invent your own truth and it all has to be equally valid. Let's get them today. 
Let's get it on the record. Let's share the sermon audio. Let's put everybody in their place. Boy, that's not my heart. Um, that's not what, I, I, part of my challenge as a preacher is I want to stand for truth. And I don't want to remove the dignity of another person in the process. Because if you're in a place in your life where you think that you can invent your own truth or that two people can believe completely contradictory things about the meaning of life, the, pers the purpose of personhood, and they're both equally valid, then you got there somehow. There's some overarching belief that's, that accompanies that, that you believe that's troubling. And so let's not make this an us versus them, but, but I do want to lean into the question because the other thing I just want to mention is I have to be honest with you, when I hear somebody say, um, that's my truth, I, I just, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to say, isn't it? Isn't it a ridiculous thing to say that, that um, I can have my own insulated absolute truth that is completely antithetical and contradictory to yours and they're both equally valid. Isn't there a part of us that would have to look at that and say something broke down in the translation there, right? Something. And yet we get there honestly. We have reasons for that. We have reasons for saying, I don't want anybody else to be able to say to me that something I'm doing is false or something I'm doing is wrong and they know the way that's right. And sometimes we're that way because we're protective and we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to get into situations where we're being, um, where we're repeating things that brought pain into our lives before. And so I, it's complicated. And I guess what I'm, what I'm saying as, as all of that is preamble is um, let's be careful with the kid who thinks he knows karate and not just mock him for it, you know, because it means something. That being said, let's get into this and let's reason together. Today's passage, the Apostle Paul is writing to believers in Galatia, and these are believers who are being tempted to abandon the truth of the gospel, specifically their freedom from the burden of religious rule-keeping. They're being tempted to abandon that for a more stringent set of rules. And so you might say religious fundamentalism was what was creeping in for them, but we need to consider how we use that term because the truth is... We're all fundamentalists in some way. We have foundational beliefs that drive how we live, how we view the world. And the question is, what are the most life-giving, best, dignifying fundamentals to embrace? I was talking with Scott Sauls. He's the, the pastor of the old Hickory location. Um, we, the, uh, the three of us pastors, we, we talk together once a week just about our sermons and bounce ideas off of each other. And he said something, I'm just going to quote him because uh, I thought he said this really well about this passage. He said, Paul himself went from being one kind of fundamentalist to another, from the kind who persecuted and killed people who opposed what he believed to an apostle to the people he once despised. He didn't stop being a fundamentalist when he became a Christian. He just changed his fundamentals when Christ changed him. The fundamental of Christianity is a man who dies for his enemies and turns them into his friends. Does Christianity, with its commitment to absolute truth, which there's no getting around it, Christianity has a firm commitment to absolute truth. There are things that are true and things that are not. 
Does Christianity then obstruct our right to be free? It's one of the criticisms that, that Christianity faces. It's an objection to Christianity. Because Christianity is a straitjacket. It obstructs our right to be free. Whenever you hear something like that, that's a question that has a lot of presupposition built into it. It has a lot of definition of terms already kind of supposed. One of those definitions is freedom. What is freedom? So in, in this sense, in the sense that Christianity obstructs your right to be free, freedom in this sense is the absence of anyone or anything speaking into our lives with any authority. Nobody gets to do that. And that's when we say, no, I make my own truth. I speak my own truth. And everyone's truth, no matter how it may contradict the truth of another, it has to be received as equally valid. You must do this, which the irony, of course, is that's an absolute truth claim, right? It's, an, it's a strong absolute truth claim to say no one can have an absolute truth. It kind of collapses in on itself as you say it. It's kind of like saying, I know karate. We, we hear this, though, in our culture. This kind of idea of freedom is tabula rosa freedom. It means it's a blank slate. The world is yours to do whatever you want, however you want, and nobody can speak anything into it. It's this blank slate, and, and the story is yours to write, and it's yours alone, and nobody can mess with that. That's sacred. And Christianity takes criticism here. Because this faith, as you see in our text is committed to particular truth. And Paul emphasizes the importance of preserving that truth so that the gospel itself is not lost. In the case of the Galatian people, people wanted to come in and they wanted to impose greater restriction on believers who seem to be living lives with more freedom than a truly religious person would accept. Almost like they smiled too much. That's one way that Christianity gets corrupted. By imposing extra rules. From which the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have set us free. But another way that it's corrupted. Is by saying that true freedom should be boundaryless. And so a real Christian should promote boundaryless freedom. Christianity does not do that. It doesn't. The idea of boundaryless freedom, however, is something we should interrogate. Because if true freedom is boundaryless, one of the things that that implies is you and I really have no intrinsic purpose. It really is a blank slate, you make it up as you go because guess what? There is no foundation under you. We're just kind of here with both feet planted firmly in midair, as Francis Schaeffer would say. We make our own purpose. In this view, Christianity is seen as being too narrow-minded. You're saying there is a purpose and it's defined and you know what it is. I want to push back on that and say it's a really narrow-minded worldview to say that this life you're living leads to nowhere in particular. And here's why it's narrow-minded. Because we ask questions. 
that betray that. We, we, we wouldn't be asking the question of purpose if we didn't have a purpose. We wouldn't be asking if it wasn't there. We intrinsically know our lives have meaning. We know life has meaning. Even the person who concludes, no, life is actually meaningless, does so through tears and despair. Why? Because there is something in each one of us that knows this can't all be for nothing. It just can't be for nothing. And if it's not all for nothing, then it must be for something, right? It has to be. And so what is that something? Purpose. What if we actually do have a purpose? And everybody has it. And it's a defined purpose. What if there is an answer to the question of the meaning of life? Christianity says there is an answer to that question. What is the meaning of life? There is an answer to the question, what is the purpose for my existence? Jesus summarized the law of God, and in the way that he did it, he gives the answer to us. The purpose, the meaning of life is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. It, our experience bears this out. Even if it's not a quest for loving God and loving neighbor, you look at humanity and we are driven by a quest to give love and to receive love, to be loved, to be the object of affection. We're driven by this. People spend their lives suffering under the brokenness of imperfect love and betrayal and loneliness and rejection. And they spend their lives seeking connection and love and acceptance. And we try to find it in all kinds of places that we know we're not gonna find it because no one ever has before. We try to find it in things like money, People try. We won't find it in achievement as a way to stand apart from others because part of us just wants to belong. I don't want to just stand apart from others. I want to belong to people. I want to belong somewhere. We won't find it in filling our lives with distraction and hobbies, avoiding intimacy. C.S. Lewis wrote this. We've got a couple of Lewis quotes coming in today. But he wrote this. He said, love anything. And your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, this is strong, in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. End quote. If we define freedom as no obstruction or limitation, then we have to jettison purpose too. And when you do that, all that's left is self-indulgence and self-protection. That's it. 
But true freedom isn't free of constraint, and anybody who's tried to do anything well knows this. We know that true freedom isn't free from constraint. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, freedom is not the absence of limitation and constraint, but it's finding the right ones, those that fit our nature and liberate us. So let's think about this. Some of you are painters. Some of you are drummers. Some of you are singers. Some of you are athletes. You run. You play a sport. You play guitar. The freedom to do that well is not free of constraint. In fact, it's profoundly disciplined, isn't it? Rembrandt didn't go from the stick figures of a kid to the masterworks that you see without practicing. He didn't just wake up able to do that. He had to learn. And he had to learn a lot of things. He had to learn what makes for good composition. How do you arrange things on a page to lead the eye of the viewer through a narrative? Because you know that's what painters do, right? When you look at a painting, that painter is owning you for the moment. They're saying, you are going to look here first, and then you're going to look here, and then you're going to look here. And they're going to do that in the way that the composition happens. They're going to train your eye to start and end in a trajectory that they put together. You're going to see a scene unfold just in a matter of a second or two when you see do 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 and it'll all come together. It's just one of the beauties of painting. But he had to learn that. He had to learn good composition. He had to learn, he had to study light and shadow, the weight of a line, the vanishing point, human form, color theory. How do you get the color right? He had to drill on the fundamentals of form and arc. He had to do that until these things were second nature, until he wasn't thinking about them anymore because he just knew how to do them. He had to embrace the constraint and the limitation. He had to scrutinize his own technique in the process. He had to correct error in his approach. He had to recognize, see the errors. Golfers know this. If you, get a, if you have an error in your swing, you've got to figure out what it is. You're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. If you want to learn to hit a curveball or play the violin or perfect the crane kick, The same truth applies. Constraint is a part of that. It's a good analogy for the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, a child can embrace the simplest board book basics of the gospel and offer stick figure prayers to the Lord, and he delights in those. But living the Christian art life is an art, and it's an art that we practice, and we practice over time, and we practice for the duration of our lives. We spend our entire lives learning how to be Christians. And if the Lord gives us many years, we will see as those years get deeper and deeper how, how much more there is to learn. Christians believe our lives do have a purpose. And so Christianity constrains believers to fulfill their purpose, to grow in their love of God and their love of neighbor. Where do the constraints lead? They lead to freedom. Right? I mean, this is, this is kind of how it work, works. Constraint, discipline focuses purpose. Mastery begets joy is another way to say that. If you, if you are a trained violinist or a trained piano player and you've spent hours and hours and hours, you experience more joy when you sit down at the piano than the person who just picked it up three months ago and is trying to just figure out how to get their fingers to behave, Right? 
We practice, we adhere to fundamentals. And that's how we grow. And we don't add things in that shouldn't be there. And we don't cut things off that are necessary. And so let's not be dismissive of truth because it's part of that. Lewis again, he said this. He said, you, you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as to not see it all. So what's the focus of Christian freedom, of the constraint, of the, of the adherence to biblical truth? What's the focus of it? This is one of the strengths of Christianity. One of the strengths of Christianity is how it looks fully in the face of the human experience. The quest for meaning, suffering, our desire to love and be loved. Christianity looks those things dead in the eye and offers answers to our deepest questions. Love is our greatest purpose. Love for God, love for neighbor. And love itself calls for the greatest constraint. Love is a binding devotion. Love is laying down your life for the sake of another. And this is what we see Paul defending in our passage today, that love has constrained him to serve the Gentile people in the name of Christ, in the same way that love has constrained John and the Apostle Peter to serve Jewish believers in the name of Christ predominantly. That love has constrained him to serve in the name of Christ who loved them and who gave himself for them. And so when we ask, shouldn't I be free to define my own truth? We must note that truth has consequences. It's not just free-floating. And one of the consequences of the truth of Christianity is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historians don't argue that there was a historical Jesus. And historians don't argue that Jesus was crucified. Historians will argue whether he was risen from the dead or not. And if you're wondering about that, the first sermon in this series, we talked about that and the validity of the resurrection and a reason why you should take that seriously. But here's the thing. If all truths are equally valid, then the suffering and the victory of Christ is unnecessary. If it doesn't really matter what you believe, then God overspent. And if it was unnecessary, Jesus then is just a martyr. He's a martyr for a cause with no real significant relationship or significance to the world. And if that's the case, if he was just a martyr, why is he so revered still? in a way that is different than any other historical human figure at all. You won't think of one that's more revered than Christ. Because there isn't one. And if he was just 
A martyr who was in the wrong place at the wrong time for believing the wrong thing, and history dealt with him. Why are we here? Whatever you believe, it must at some point be attached to something that's true, or it's not worth your allegiance. And if we're talking about ultimate belief, we're talking about the meaning of life, reason for existence, eternal hope, is this something any one of us feels equipped to architect on our own with any sort of accuracy? Do you think you can do that? Should we expect that to go any differently than if we stepped into the ring with the black belt thinking we knew karate because we saw the karate kid? summarizing where we went, because I know I've given you a lot. It's been a drink of water from a fire hose a little bit. So let me summarize what I just said in a paragraph, and then we'll conclude with C.S. Lewis again. One objection to Christianity is that it obstructs our right to be free. Freedom in this sense is the absence of anyone or anything speaking into our lives with any kind of authority. But what if we actually do have purpose? Defined purpose. What if there's an answer to the question of the meaning of life. Christianity is to find the answers to these questions. You were created to love God and to love your neighbor, to be loved by your maker. In other words, kind of at the heart of that is you are a created being and you have a maker and before anything else, you were made for a relationship with him. And Christianity is saying, this is how that happens. So I want to read this short passage from Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, from the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm going to try in this congregation not to wear out Narnia, because uh, preachers can do that, and we can go to Narnia a lot. But uh, I don't think I've used Narnia yet this year, so here we go. This is a passage about a thirsty child named Jill who meets a lion named Oslin, who is the Christ figure at a stream. And he's blocking the way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could, could I, would you mind going away a while, while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. Pray with me. Lord, it 
it's not some theologian's idea that Christianity should be an exclusive truth. It's the nature of Christianity itself. That we believe in one God, in one creator, in the fall of man, in a need for our relationship with you to be restored, in our inability to restore that relationship on our own. We believe that you have acted in time and in space through the life and the death and the resurrection of your son Jesus to restore us to you to be our record of righteousness, to take our sin upon himself and to give us his righteousness so that when you look upon us, you see the righteousness of your son who has dealt with our sin completely. And all of this is for the purpose of us living in face-to-face relationship with you forever glorifying the name of your son. This is our purpose. You've made us for this. And so... Forgive us when we try to find our purpose and our meaning apart from you. When we try to find it in in some disconnected idea of achievement or success or wealth or pleasure or the perfection of a skill or a craft. Lord, forgive us for rejecting your right to speak into the lives of those you have made and you have given breath with authority. Lord, help us to be humble for believers in this room, for Christian people in this room. Help us to be very humble in the ways that we engage with people who don't believe what we believe. That we would not mock them for believing something different. But that we'd be moved to compassion. We'd long to engage with clarity, with a listening ear. And also, as the Apostle Paul said, without moving our feet, not even a little, in terms of the fundamentals of what we believe. We're thankful for the mercy and the grace that is ours in Christ. We're thankful for the opportunity we have to come to your table, which reminds us that we are called into fellowship with you and it's a fellowship that has been arranged by you. And uh, we delight in that, Lord. And we're thankful for your mercy and your grace and your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's read together as we prepare to come to the Lord's table.